Welcome to Coffee with Kim. I'm Kim Kelp, and every week you and I sit down with fascinating, smart, and talented leaders, CEOs, and founders so that we can copy their homework. If someone knows how to do something really well, I want to know what it is and exactly how they're doing it. Get ready for aha moments, gems of wisdom, and little known tips and tricks that we can steal and use in our own lives. If you want to join these conversations and ask these experts your own questions, no point in just me having all the fun. Join us on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern live over on LinkedIn. Hi, happy Wednesday. It is so good to see you. I am coming from Florida today. A little bit of change of scenery. I hope that wherever you're coming in from, you have decided to share that in the chat with all of us here. So we can all feel like we're cozying up together in the same warm coffee shop. So I hope you are having an amazing start to the week and that you are ready for an awesome conversation because that's kind of what we have in store for today. So I hope that you have brought all of your questions around change, around adapting, around entrepreneurship, around business, because boy, oh boy, do we have someone that can cover all of those topics and more just for you. I want to say a special hello to Liz and Derek and Ben and Alexandra and Jeff, who's coming on via mobile, who have said hi in the chat. That's where the party happens. So if you haven't already, jump on in there. You have to realize that for better or for worse, we're all helping each other. So if you thought that you were going to lean back, have a nice little viewing session with Jason and I, you are wrong because you're part of this conversation. So scoot up. Get your fingers a typing in that chat because we are all helping each other on this crazy road called life. I'm really excited about today's coffee guest because if you know me, you will know him. Why? Because I repost his content all the time. I like his comments on the time. I'm constantly talking about all of the amazing things that he's doing. And in addition to just being a dear friend, he's really smart and an awesome guy. So if you don't already, if you haven't Google stocked Jason Pfeiffer, I encourage you to do so with the links that we are going to drop right now live in the chat. If you're listening to this on audio afterwards, they will be in the show notes. But Jason is an amazingly talented author. His new book, Bill for Tomorrow, is currently out. I read it a few weeks ago. I actually listened to it on Audible. So I'd encourage you whether you want to listen or read. It's such an amazing book. So I wanted him to come on so we could kind of dig into that whole subject of adapting the new work world, how we're building for tomorrow, all of those good subject areas. So wherever you are, can you help me by raising a glass and welcoming Jason to our coffee chat? Hello, Kim. So great to see you. So good to see water. you. How are you? I'm great. You know, it's funny, as you were making that very nice and generous introduction, I was thinking that although we are IRL friends now, that I think I first, like, found you as an entity in the world through the earliest version of Coffee with Kim on LinkedIn, when you were just like posting like little minute long videos where you were holding a coffee cup and offering a tip. And I was like, this is so smart. It's consistent. It's fun. It's useful. It's friendly. And I just, I think I just DM'd you and that's how it all began. 
That is the, the power, the magic of the interwebs, which is True. why I love these sessions so much. Yeah. I mean, look, and it's like a great lesson for everybody. It, you know, if people are watching here and they're on LinkedIn, then they have the opportunity right now to just post something themselves, connect. It's like, it's truly amazing what happens when you start first and just put something out. It's almost, I like to think of it like the bat signal. Like everything that I make is like the bat signal that goes out and then people see it and then they come to me. That, that's often how I think of content. Oh my gosh. But I will say creating that bat signal, as you and I have talked about many times, super intimidating. Yes. Like yeah. putting it out is like, it'd be really it's, scary. It's super intimidating until you actually do it. So what I found, you know, prior to Entrepreneur Magazine, I treated social media like um, it was it was just updates on my life, you know, like the, the, the average person, how they use it and uh, like regular social media. And then when I became editor in chief and I, I got this sense that people expected something different of me and I didn't know what it was yet, but I just started using social in a different way. And I was posting advice or insights. And I really, I was afraid because what I thought was my actual friends who at this point are the only people who follow me are going to find this so obnoxious, right? They're so going to be cringe. like, what are you pretending to be an influencer now? But instead something very unexpected happened, which is that my friends started DMing me and saying, oh, that was good advice or, oh, that was really useful. And it was, it was really empowering and emboldening. And then there were others who just weren't that into it and whatever, it doesn't matter. But the thing is like, you think it's weird and awkward, but actually if you're being useful, people love nothing more than usefulness. Well, and even I found that if people don't directly comment on your stuff, so let's say they're not like, oh, Jason, that was such a great article or, oh, Jason, that was such a good podcast episode. Um, they will like drop it months later. Like, oh yeah, you talked about that once. And I'll be like, what? Yeah. wait, what? And they're like, yeah, you wrote that article one time. And I'm like, oh, but you never said anything at the time. You never said like great article. I read the whole thing. So I always say like people are listening and reading and watching you, even if they aren't acknowledging it. Yeah. It's built. It's building a relationship. Content is a relationship builder. And you may not even be aware of that relationship at the time, but the more that you put out, the more that you're strengthening those bonds. And then those bonds can be useful in so many ways. Well, and you, and like we've talked about it before, I feel like when you create content, you can go in so many different directions, job opportunities, awards, honors, like all these possibilities that maybe weren't even something that were on your radar, all of a sudden start like magically happening yeah. that they wouldn't have otherwise. I, you know, I have this thing uh, that I like to ask myself of everything that I do. I, I recommend people start doing this with everything that they do too, which is to ask this simple question, what is it for? Like, what is it for of, of everything? Because the interesting thing is that if you ask it over and over again, the answer will change, but it also becomes a great filter of how you should devote your resources to different things that are demanding your time. So when I ask, what is it for of, for example, this podcast that I make, which is very labor intensive, it doesn't make me much money. What is it for? I keep asking myself, you know, in the very beginning, what is it for? It's for teaching me how to do this. It's a new skill set. I think that I can use it in other ways. Now I think of it as two things. Number one, what is it for? It is a opportunity magnet because people find it and then they come to me and I build relationships with, with them, which are useful in other ways, including the, the book that I wrote. 
And then number two is that it's an IP factory. So it forces me to talk to interesting people, to develop interesting ideas. And then I utilize that information in lots of other ways, whether that's on a talk or an article or whatever. And so because I have that definition for myself of what this is for, I understand how much time to put into it and what I should expect to get back. It's a really important question. You should be asking it of everything. Well, and for you, I feel like, you know, and we've kind of talked about this offline, but what it ended up being was sort of a testing ground for the book. Yes. Because it's not like, it's not like five years ago, you said, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be called build for tomorrow. And it's going to come out in 2022. You know, it was the podcast started and then the people started really resonating with it. And then the inkling idea and the book, and then it was, it was a journey. It wasn't like one thing it was a series of events. That's right. And and I think that that's ultimately how any big project grows is that you need to just be working things out live. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that, of working things out live. I mean, this is something that you'll hear as good practical advice for starting a business too, right? Which is that it's not going to be perfect at the very beginning. It's impossible to be, right? Reed Hoffman has that great line, which is Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, which is that um, if you aren't embarrassed by your first product launch, then you launched too late. I, I love that. And uh, and it's totally true. So the best thing that you can do is just get something out into the world so that people can react to it so that you can then react to their reactions, understand what they need and what they don't like, and then build. So that's something that I think works for ideas too. I, I, I like to think um, uh, of it in terms of like when I'm moving through the world, I think of this, this concept that I call ideas as content, which is basically like every time that I encounter something that I think could lead to a lesson for others, I just try it out. Um, I, I bang out a quick post on LinkedIn or on, on Instagram or something. And if people react to it well, then I might graduate it to a different space. So I might say, oh, well, that was a good LinkedIn post. Does it work as a magazine column? Oh, it does work as a magazine column. Maybe does it work as a chapter in a book? Oh, it does. And this way I'm, I'm being efficient with my ideas, but I'm also just trying out lots of things over and over again. And, you know, funny enough, actually, I had, uh, this was years ago, but I, I, I got drinks with Gary Vaynerchuk and, um, and I'd asked him what his process is for developing ideas. And he says that it starts with Twitter. Because for him, Twitter is a, a, a quick place to just dash off an idea. It's one sentence long. And then it basically creates a permanent record of how people react to it. So you can see, did a lot of people like this? Did they not? Is it worth expanding upon or is it not? It was a really interesting way to, to, to be really centralized about how to work things out live. Well, and I'm curious for you, what is an idea maybe in the last three, five, six months that you, that has gone through that process that it's, that started as a LinkedIn post or started as a tweet and then sort of graduated its way up? Well, so I, the, the latest thing, I, I, I mean, if I spent a little more time with it, I could probably think of like something that literally started with a, with a LinkedIn post and made its way yeah. all the way up. But because I can't so quickly enough, I'll say that one thing that just kind of graduated to the very top of something that I that I do actively is that I brought a new idea into my talk. So I, you know, I got companies hire me and I come and I, you know, come in and I have this structured talk, which is which I built 
um, for anybody who's interested in, in doing this kind of work, I built it modularly. So there's an intro and then there's five modules that I can kind of take out or rearrange as I want. And then there's an outro. And each module is a, is a big idea that has a name. And then there's a story attached to, to kind of illustrate the concept. And then some kind of takeaway that I, I often, frankly, ad lib at the end and try to make it relevant to the individual audience. And, um, and there had been a story that I was telling about the automobile and the early days of the automobile. And, and I found that it often came up in, it wasn't part of the talk, but it, it often was an answer that I would use in Q and A's. And I thought, oh, well, that's, it's good to have that as a, as a, as a thing that I know I can go to. Cause somebody will always ask a question that'll prompt the car thing and people like it. And then my agent uh, came to see me speak and afterward had me repeat the car story from the Q and A to like all the other agents at the office. And I started to think maybe this belongs in the main piece. And I asked him, he said, you know, that's a great way actually to build a talk is to, is to identify the things that people are most interested in on the fly, because that's really your test for what your audience cares about. And then you can take that and actually just build it into the central talk. So that's what I just did. Like two weeks ago, I revised my talk. I built this thing in that had come up in the Q and A's and now it's part of the main show. And, uh, and it's all because, you know, you got to be listening constantly to what people are reacting to and then making sure that you're, you're anticipating that and giving them the best version of what they don't even know they want. Well, and I feel like that's part of, you know, for anybody who's read the book, if not, you need to read the book. That adaptation is up. Oh, Vanna White for us. Why don't I just uh, hold it? Uh, it's, yeah. so it's, hard, it's hard to, it's hard to show an audio book. So. I know yeah. I'd have to show it on my phone and that wouldn't do it justice. So <laughs> that's anyway, what not the same. Yeah. But adaptation is such a big part. It's a central part of the book. So I'm curious yeah. when you were thinking about the book and like the different kind of the four processes, four steps, modules, but whatever syntax you want to use to describe yeah. them, you know, was adaptation where you started and then you kind of built from there. Actually, panic is where I started. So I, um, and, and that wasn't personal panic, but rather the the, the observation of panic. And there yeah. was plenty of personal panic too. But um, but I, okay. So so for those, so, you know, I'll sort of lay it out here that um, uh, this book is oriented around this central idea, which is that change happens in four phases: panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back. And the idea is that everybody goes through these four stages of, uh, of change. It's what we all experience. The most successful people simply move through them faster. They're able to get through the panic faster. They're able to adapt faster. And I argue that that's because they have faith in the possibility of the wouldn't go back moment at the end, that there is this moment that will be so new and valuable that you'll say, I, I, I don't want to go back to a time before I had this. People often don't believe that that's there available to them. And so as a result, they often try to cling to what they had rather than move confidently towards what they can have. And this honestly was a story that I started to tell as a way of explaining what I was seeing in the world of entrepreneurship to um, clients, uh, sales clients of entrepreneurs. So uh, during the pandemic, the deeper days of the pandemic, I would get on these calls, uh, sales calls for with clients for entrepreneur, and they would say, so what are you seeing? What are entrepreneurs thinking? And what I had observed was that entrepreneurs at, at different paces, right, at different stages, we're all kind of coming to recognize that 
having their businesses disrupted actually allowed them to recognize new opportunities in their business. But it was hard and it took time and it was very scary. And, and so over time, I just kind of developed the story of the four phases of change and people would always hear it and say, oh, that's that's me. I'm in, I'm in panic right now, right? And because everyone recognizes panic, and I've spent a lot of time studying how people get through that, and I'm very interested in history and how, how there are repetitive panics throughout time, I thought, if I can start with panic and see what is causing that and how people escape it, then I think that we've basically got the relatable foundation of what's going on here and everything else will flow. So that, that, that's where it began. And um, you know what? Also, panic is just, it's kind of fun. Like it's, it's, it's fun to, it's fun to understand it. You know, like it's fun to see other people go through it because they, they're missing things. And if you, if you give it enough time, it, it looks ridiculous, right? Like there was a, there was a, um, a national moral panic over the teddy bear in 1907. Like schools were banning teddy bears and priests were preaching against teddy bears. It's so ridiculous when you look back on it. It's like funny panic. But when you understand these things, you can recognize that actually we do versions of that today. And the things that we're afraid of now are going to look kind of quaint and silly tomorrow when we understand how the change that we went through was actually valuable. Well, I'm curious for you, you know, having spoken to so many entrepreneurs, like living and breathing in that space, I also just feel like part of entrepreneurship, if you're good at it, good being a loose term, mm. but you almost should live in a perpetual state of panic. Like what I forget the quote, but it's basically like, if you're not a little scared every day, like, then you're not pushing hard enough. Yeah. Like every day you should be, I'm not saying like full-blown panic. But there should be like an underlying current of like subtle panic, yeah. I guess. I think that's fair. I mean, look, panic is often not constructive. So it's it's maybe worth reframing. If, 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 if people are listening to you right now and they're like, well, that's cool, Kim, you can keep the panic. Like, I'm not interested in that. Right, then maybe it's worth reframing it because it's not, you know, I mean, panic is one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is that you should always be mindful that the thing that you're doing now is not going to work forever. And so therefore, how do we build the reality of change into the things that we're doing now? Like, like it's just, it's, it's a real, you know, it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, um, which, which I, I, you know, like I, I love sharing because uh, it's fun and, and it just illustrates this point really nicely, which was so, okay. So there's a, have you ever had a beer called 60 minute IPA by Dogfish? No. You're missing out but on I a good beer. I remember it from your article. So, um, so there's a beer, it's called 60 minute IPA and it's by a brewery called Dogfish in Delaware. And the story of this beer is awesome. So Sam is the founder of Dogfish. And in the early days, he he makes this beer called the 90-minute IPA. So nine, 90-minute references 9% alcohol by volume, which is like, you know, that's like a beer that puts you on the floor, right? Like you just drink it and then you're like done. And, um, and so his distributor reaches out to him and says, hey, could you make a version of this that people could drink standing up? That sounds like, you know, a good plan. And so Sam says, oh, good. Yeah. Why don't we make, we'll make a 60 minute IPA, 6% alcohol by volume. It's far more drinkable. Like a Budweiser is like a 4.5%. So, right, you know, this is, you can have a few and you're still standing. 
And so Sam makes this beer and people love this beer. And then they like need this beer. They have to have this beer. Like, and, uh, and very quickly sales of dogfish 60 minute IPA are rocketing up to become 75 to 80% of all sales of his company. And you know, you might think, well, this is fantastic. Like this is, this is, this is the whole point of, of a business, right? Is to have a hit product. But Sam says, I've got a problem. And the problem is that tastes change, which means that although I could ride this for a while, it would mean that every time somebody goes to a store or a restaurant and they encounter dogfish, they're going to encounter this one style of beer, which means that they're going to think of us as a hot IPA brand, which is fine until IPAs, India Pale Ale, a very popular bitter style of beer. You don't like them? No, you're not. No, I'm saying until it goes out of style and then you're... There you go. I thought you were. I thought you were making beer commentary. We no, it's all good beer. until beer it ain't yeah. good. Then you're right. Then down. Then you're not a high, hot IPA brand anymore. Then you're an old brand, and that you don't want. So Sam makes this decision, which is to cap sales of his best-selling product at fifty percent. Remember, it could have been seventy-five to eighty percent. He's cutting it to fifty percent. People are very upset about this. They're yelling at him on the streets, like. There, you know, and I and I've walked around Delaware with Sam. Sam is Beyonce in Delaware. People are like taking selfies of him, but like they they're angry because you know you run the local restaurant and you're not able to carry the hot local beer. What's going on? And he he says, I asked him, did did you did you worry about this? And he said, no, because I saw it as an opportunity to educate people about a broader range of options. So I would say, I'm sorry that we can't fulfill the order right now. We make the beer really fresh. We're trying to keep up with demand, which was basically a lie. And then in the meantime, why don't you try some of our other styles or try our Saison or our pumpkin ale or something like that? And this is how Sam gets the full range of his products out into the marketplace and therefore becomes known not as an old IPA brand, but rather as an innovative brand. And that is how a couple of years ago, he sold that company for $300 million. Now, that is not what happens when you aren't acting with the understanding that things that you're doing now are not going to work tomorrow. So that, that goes back to this point that we were making. Like, you have to operate with, if not a little bit of panic, then at least a little, a little bit of recognition that you have to build the reality of impending change into what you're doing now before you even see it. And if you do that, you start to think a lot broader about how you could operate and how you can do things today that are going to help you tomorrow. Well, which I think is so important, especially I want to touch on Jeff's point, but then also add one of my own. And Jeff's point was, you know, don't cling to the past, essentially, you know, move forward to what's possible. But I mean, we've all heard rumblings, I think, in the last week or two. Uh, incoming recession, whether that's Jeff Bezos, whether that's David Solomon, sort of kind of waving the red flag that this might be coming in the next 12 or 18 months. So for some business owners, or maybe even just people that work in corporate, I think in the story you just told, you know, having all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, all your all your beers in one flavor, uh, was really worrisome because exactly if that beer goes out of flavor, then you're you're up a creek without a paddle. Yeah. So as we start to think about if, if, when, whatever you want to go, what word you want to use, you know, the, this impending recession comes, what do you think are things that entrepreneurs or people should be thinking about? Is it diversifying your business that, you know, if something starts to change tomorrow, that you're not overly 
leveraged in one area? I think you have to start with, and you know, like the caveat here is of course, everybody's business is a little different and their right. scale is different and their finances are different. But I, I, I think that a good starting point for whenever there's a, a large scale change like this is to recognize that you're not the only one going through it. So that means that although your business or your career or your whatever is going to be changing as a result, perhaps, so is everybody else's. Now, I remember people talking about this at the beginning of the pandemic and saying, look, what people need right now more than anything else is solutions. Like they're being disrupted and therefore they're looking around for who can help them solve problems. Just because you're in a recession or a pandemic or anything, that doesn't mean that people stop having needs. They, they, they need things still. And in fact, Often when there's a moment of big disruption, it means that the incumbents that used to serve them maybe can't do it as well or in the same way. Maybe, for example, um, you know, somebody can't afford the solution that they used to turn to and they're looking for something that's a little more customized or a little cheaper or a little more scaled down. That's a great opportunity for somebody to step up and say, actually, over here, I've got what you need right now. So that means that the very first thing that you need to do as you're trying to prepare for what, whatever this is, uh, it's, it's funny because you know at, at Entrepreneur Magazine, we work three, three, four months in advance. And so you never want to put something too timely into the magazine that could change by the time it actually comes out. So we're allergic to the word recession because like, I don't know what's going to happen in four months. So I, we keep using the term economic uncertainty. So, uh, uh, so you know, we, 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 uh, if you're going to prepare for economic uncertainty, one of the things you need to do is make sure that you, you as, a, as a base point, really, really understand your customers and where their anxieties are and what about you is, is central to them. Because that's going to help you figure out where your resources are needed the most. Um, and then you might want to double down on the way in which you are perceived as essential and maybe pause some other things that are exciting, but that may not be exactly what people are going to need right now. Well, and I think Matt just touched on this point really perfectly, which is if you can help other people solve their problems you know, if you can be that problem solver, that it doesn't even matter what problems you're solving, quite yeah. frankly, that is really what is going to draw people to you, have people come in, want to hear what you have to say, because they know that you're offering solutions in a time where there is a lot of uncertainty and maybe solutions are not everywhere. Right. Which is why people sometimes, all, uh, this especially happens with students where I'll go and I'll speak at a college and a student will come up after and say, like, I don't, I don't have an idea for a business. I, 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 how do I find an idea? And, you know, the answer is like, it's not at the idea factory, right? So yeah. where, where is it? And uh, the answer that I always give is don't focus on that. You need an idea, go find a problem. Like just go find a problem that people have and talk to them about the problem. What's wrong about this? What has not worked in other people trying to solve it? How can you then get creative and trying to address something that people need? Because ultimately that's the way in which you're going to build something great. You start with what people already need. Otherwise you could start with like a crazy idea that you have <laughs> that you, you know, like woke up at three in the morning and you're like, aha, but then you got to go convince people that it's valuable. And, and it might right. not be, or it might be too hard to explain it to them. So you start with the problem and then you build from there. 
Well, and our, our mutual friend, Vanessa Van Edwards said this line to me and it has forever stuck, but she said, there is a reason that painkillers will always outsell vitamins. <laughs> yeah. If you can solve a problem, that is always easier for people to hand over money, okay, I get it, than to try to explain to people why you should take vitamins, why vitamins are important, that if you have to explain you know, your, your product or your idea or your service, it's, it's already going to be an uphill battle. Yeah, that's, that's totally, I love that line. It's, it's, it's really true. Also, I mean, people, people are bad about being proactive <laughs> and that is, a, that's a, but you know, it's funny because this tees up and, and I'll just, I'll share it briefly. Um, so I told you earlier that there was this car story that got promoted into my, into my talk. So maybe somebody was wondering, what's the car story? So, um, so I'll tell it to you. You can also find it. See, now this is another opportunity where I just weave in an opportunity to tap my book and say, get it. But this is, this is, this is in Built for Tomorrow, along with um, a lot of other extrapolation of this point that I'm about to make. So, um, so I think that oftentimes what we, what we need to do is recognize that the thing that we believe in, that we've built, that we're so proud of, we understand it a lot better than anybody else does. And therefore, we may not see the way in which they are confused about it. So the, 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 what we need to do is we need to recognize where they are and then build a bridge of familiarity, is what I like to call it, from them to us rather than from us to them. So what does that mean? Well, here's the car story. Back in the early days of the car, like late 1800s, the car was not a word. People called it the horseless carriage, and that's if they were being generous. And if they if they weren't being generous, they called it the devil wagon because that's they, they hated this thing. It was it was loud. It was obnoxious. People would yell if somebody if a car drove down the street. If you if if if, if like 1800s Kim was driving a car down the street, uh, you know what people would do? They would stand on the side, like on the on the uh, on the sidewalk, and they would yell get a horse at you is what they would do like actual thing like you can find it in newspapers and um and so the story that we tell now about how the car became this dominant mode of transportation is that um is that uh <laughs> and as i say this i'm thinking somebody somebody should later ask kim why uh, the passenger seat in the front of her car is so far back uh <laughs> It's a, um, yeah. it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird thing from her husband who likes to chill. Um, so, um, so the car, how did the car become a dominant mode of transportation? The answer is often said that it's Henry Ford, that Henry Ford revolutionized manufacturing. And as a result, uh, he made cars, fa uh, you know, more accessible to the average person. But that's, that, that skips over a really important point. And the really important point was that before Henry Ford, the car industry had figured out how to talk about the car. They were originally advertising the car as a replacement to the horse, which is to say, they would say, get rid of Dobbin. This is what the ads would say. Get rid of Dobbin, Dobbin being a generic name for a horse. Get rid of Dobbin and instead get this car. But you know what? People didn't like that. People found that offensive. And the reason they found it offensive is because they liked their horse. Their horse was a member of the family. The horse had been in their family for as long as they had known. Now, here are these like Silicon Valley tech bros of the 1800s saying, get rid of it because this is this, what you're doing is stupid. People don't like that. You know why, Kim? Because people don't like new things. What they like are better versions of old things. That's what they like. So the car industry 
realized they needed to stop talking about the car as a replacement to the horse and start talking about the car as a better horse. And so they started popularizing terms like horsepower. They started naming cars after horses, which is something we still do today. They started putting mechanical horse heads on the front of cars, which we do not do today. But the point is that they were ultimately recognizing that they needed to start with where people are familiar and then bring them towards the car rather than take the car and try to bring that to people. When you turn that around and you start where people are and you build a bridge of familiarity from them to you, you give them the comfort of familiarity and you give them the permission to be open to something new because it feels old. So anyway, that's something that, that came out of the book and that I, I, I started telling a lot to people uh, when they would ask questions about how to connect new, you know, with customers or how, how do I drive innovation? And uh, anyway, now that I, now I graduated into the talk. Well, I'm curious because because I feel like Rachel's question kind of goes along with the car story and the car analogy. You know, there's lots of people in a house. So even if one person is like, yeah, let's get a, get rid of the horse and get the car, there could be other people in the house that are like, are you crazy? We're, we, we love our horse. We're not getting rid of the car. So there could be people that are listening or joining us today that work in teams or maybe they have a co-founder or maybe their family members or friends aren't necessarily on board with the change or maybe mm -hmm. have not moved through the four stages fast enough or as fast as you have. So I'm curious, have you seen any situations historically or maybe just in your everyday life where you are getting others to embrace that change with you? Or I don't know, trying to pull them along alongside yeah. you. So yeah, a couple things there. Number one, oftentimes if people are reacting, there are kind of two basic negative reactions to new things to change. Number one is that they see it as loss. So you'll see this particularly in teams going through a reorg at, at, at work, for example, that the change to them looks like loss. It means that this thing that they were comfortable with and familiar with, they no longer have access to it. And that feels very scary. Then they start to extrapolate the loss. So they start to say, well, because I lost this, I'm going to lose that. Because I lost that, I'm going to lose that other thing. That's where we really get into a tailspin of panic. So that's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is that instead of experiencing it, as loss, they simply don't know what to do with it. All right. So, uh, so here, here is this brand new great thing, but, oh, I don't see how this fits into my, into my life. I mean, we've all, anybody who's ever worked at an office, for example, has been told, oh, we're now all doing it this way, right? We're now all using this new tool. And maybe that doesn't feel like loss because maybe I didn't really care about the old tool all that much, but I, I don't see why this is valuable. Like I just, what is the point of this? I don't understand this. And so in, it, you know, it, you have to understand like, what is it that people aren't connecting to? And then you really start to address that. So if we're talking about loss, one of the things we can do is try to help people recognize the potential gain to sort of focus their focus, the conversations on where this is ultimately going to pay off so that people can see what they're working towards and how the new thing that they're going to have is actually much more valuable than maybe the thing that they're losing. And, you know, we, there are frameworks in which to do that. But then if we're talking about how to get people to recognize the value of it, I mean, this goes a little bit to the bridge of familiarity that I, um, that I, that I spoke about, but, uh, one modern example that always, that jumps to mind is um, 
when Nintendo was releasing the Wii, which is, uh, remember that revolutionary game console in, in 2006, uh, you know, the Wii was, it, it had a sensor, you, you move it and the, your character moves. It was really, really cool, but it was going to be very foreign to people, right? People would understand the mechanics of it, but why play this? Why is this better? Um, we had a, or Nintendo had developed a game called Wii Sports, which anyone who ever played the Wii will remember. Um, but the fascinating thing is that Nintendo corporate had actually intended for the Wii, Sport, Wii Sports, the game, to be sold separately because they knew it was so good that they wanted to make a ton of money off of it. The idea was like, this is going to be our big moneymaker on the Wii. But the president of Nintendo America at the time, Reggie Filsame, he said, no, 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 this is a mistake. We actually have to forego the profits that they, we would have on selling Wii Sports separately and bundle it together with the Wii. Because when people buy the Wii, we need, it's a, it's, a, it's a revolutionary idea. It's totally fresh. People need to know how this is going to fit into their lives. And therefore, the Wii Sports game is the best argument for why you should have a Wii. It shows you the range of possibilities. So we have to give it away for free because it will make people love this thing so much that they'll want to buy even more. Nintendo split the baby on this. They decided to, uh, in the Asian markets, they sold them separately. And in the North American and European markets that Reggie oversaw, they, they bundled them together. So you have a nice A-B test. And the answer was that Reggie's markets sold significantly more and significantly faster than the Asian markets. And so that went to validate his idea that we need to make sure that we understand what people are missing about the thing that we're 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 introducing to them them to, and then and then and then help them bridge that gap so that they they see the value for themselves. Ooh, I love that example. Isn't that fun? I talked to Reggie. It, it blew my mind. Yeah, amazing. That's so, and it's not often in business, as you know, that you get those sort of perfect A/B tests. No. Because things are always different and people always want to try to get on the same page. So that's like a really unique case study, I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Because oftentimes companies will pick, they'll pick one direction and then you can debate forever what happened, right? You can have all the, all the counterfactual thinking in the world, but it doesn't always tell you, you know, you know, it's super interesting. Um, I, I got really curious about counterfactual thinking, which is the, the, the psychological term for what if thinking. So if, um, you know, if I, if I blew this conversation with you, Kim, uh, and it was uh, very awkward. And then afterwards I kick myself for like, Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. That would have made it much better. Right. Like what I'm doing is counterfactual thinking. We've all done versions of that. And, um, I called up a bunch of experts to understand how this works in our heads. Cause I've gone through this. Everyone's gone through this. Want to understand it better. And they said one of the really interesting things is that is that you would think that we actually would learn the counterfactual thinking it would be kind of something programmed in our brain because we're trying to learn from mistakes, which would make sense. And so it's 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 us identifying where things went wrong, and then we're kind of getting stuck in a loop. But the problem is that we actually don't often learn from them because there are too many factors, right? So if I if I if I completely messed up my coffee with Kim appearance, um, I might have an idea of what went wrong. And I might try to learn from that, but I might not be right about what right. went wrong. And therefore, I'm going to draw the wrong lesson, which is why we actually, we learn not from individual experiences, but we learn from, from like repetitive failures, which is unfortunate for us, but that's how it often goes. And so, you know, when you, when you, you know, to your point about 
how a company makes one decision and then maybe they don't have the outcome that they want. It, it, it's, it's hard because it's not a perfect A-B test. Um, it, it makes you realize that, that as we're making decisions and as we're, as we're building in uh, the things that we're going to do and kind of monitoring the outcomes, that we want to, we want to, we want to kind of run as many experiments as we can so that we can learn the correct things about what went wrong. It's great for things to go wrong because you learn so much about them. Um, you know, I, I, Thomas Edison, I think famously said uh, when somebody said, uh, um, you know, you've been trying, I can't remember what it was. You've been trying the light bulb forever and it, and you've gotten nowhere. And he, and he, you know, his answer was something like, uh, that's not true at all. I've discovered 10,000 ways it doesn't work like that. That, that could be really valuable. But we better make sure that we actually understand the lessons that we can draw from those mistakes if we want to turn them into data and make them useful. Well, and not only our mistakes, but other people's mistakes. I mean, that's why I love, you know, we're gonna we're about to do these like speed round questions, which I, you know, lovingly refer to as copy my homework, because I think there is so much to learn. We we all think, myself included, we all think that we're unique snowflakes. Like, oh, I'm such a unique snowflake mm -hmm. and I'm the only one with my problem and no one else in the world has ever had my problem before. And in yeah. reality, there's like 10,000 people who all mm -hmm. have the same problem as you. And so it's when you start talking to people and you say, oh, oh, you struggled with that? Oh, what did you do? You know, how did you? So I, I think it can even be not even our own mistakes, but I love hearing, <laughs> sounds so dark. I love hearing other people's mistakes or their potholes or where they messed up because I take that and I'm like, ooh, note to self, you know, don't, don't do that or don't, you know, go turn left when you should go right. Cause I, I feel like I learned so much even from conversations like this and, and kind of copying other people's homework and hearing what worked or didn't work for them. I, I completely agree with that. There's a phrase that I'm going to see if I can find fast enough. I don't know that I will be able to. It's it's. Um, I talked to. Have you ever spoken to um, Katie Milkman? No. Oh, she's great. So she's a Wharton. She studies. Um, she she wrote a book called How to Change. She studies decision making, and um, oh. and one of the things she told me about that 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 uh is, is it, there, there's a uh, I'm scanning through my. I can't find it fast enough. Whatever. Anyway, so it's a. Um, it was a fun, I like to remember like the psychological terms because it makes things sound like more impressive yeah, than when I just official. summarize it. Yeah. But, um, but she said that there's a, there's a thing we do where we assume that other people think like us. And yeah. as a result, we actually aren't driven to explore how other people are solving the same problem because we assume, well, they're probably just dealing with it the same way that I am, but they're not, they're actually doing different things. And, and, um, and so she said, she said to me when I, I interviewed her for the book, because um, she she runs all these really interesting studies. She said one of the one of the greatest overlooked things that we can do is simply ask other people how they did something. Um, right? So uh, you know, she said students will come to her and say, I, "I'm having trouble, uh, you know, grappling with my um, my course load work or whatever. What you know, what do you think I should do?" And and her response is, "Well, have you asked your peers what they do?" And the answer is like. Uh, no. Well, why don't you try that as a start, right? And um, and people don't think to do that. But actually, when you start to ask other people, you discover that there are lots of different strategies that you can then employ. And then basically, you know, you call it copy your homework. Katie calls it copy and paste. But but the you know the, the the point is that there's just so much to learn from others. But the starting point has to be recognizing that there are infinite varieties of ways to solve problems. And the best thing that you can do is expose yourself to lots of those varieties. Well, exactly, which is why I'm about to ask you right now, 
what what's something that you have been doing lately or using lately could be an app could be uh, listening to a certain podcast like what's what's something that you've been doing lately that you feel like has been really beneficial and helpful and you're it, it's one of those things where you can't wait to tell other people about it like you sit down and brunch and you're like I got to tell you about this new thing I've been doing or buying or seeing <laughs> you know I wish that I had some like cool secret for that um I will tell you that I um I have been okay well first I bought you know where you know where we're talking right now uh here we go because I bought one of those standing desks that moves up standing and down by desks. itself and I'm so into it. So, um, so because, uh, it makes me feel more awake. I was finding that at like 3 PM, I was starting to like get really sluggish. And so now, now here's what I got. I got, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the Crocs for the good, you know, the good, um, the good, the good feet feeling like it, it allows me to stand for much longer. And, um, yeah, they feel, they feel good. Uh, and um, I have these mats that I use in the kitchen. They're like rubber mats for when I'm standing at the stove. <laughs> I sound like a 1950s housewife. Like I'm yeah. like I'm over the stove with like a soup or something. I, you know, I'm stirring Annie's mac and cheese. Don't anyone get impressed. Yeah. But the, those thick rubber mats are also great. I think you can get them on Amazon. Mm. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm there for it. I'm there for it. I mean, you know, I also have before the Crocs, my dad had given me these like old man slippers, uh, which were very, I think they're called like Ufas or something. I don't know. Anyway, I guess what's the lesson here? Number one, high tech, get yourself something that allows you to stand. Low tech, embrace that you're an old person who needs uh, uh, funny things on their feet, right? They, there's, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. It's fine. We're, yeah. we're all getting to that point, right. you know? It, it is what it is. Yeah. Okay, what is something we could copy from you when it comes to like a podcast that you're listening to or a newsletter that you read every day or an account you follow. Maybe it's a mm -hmm. certain person on Instagram or a certain brand on LinkedIn, but yeah. are there, are there accounts or people or things that you think that we could kind of steal from? So here's, here's one of my favorite newsletters. Um, it is called Garbage Day. Have you ever heard of it? It's okay. So it's not, let me be clear. This is not going to help you run a business better or be a better whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, so it's run, it's written by this guy named Ryan Broderick and he is a internet culture reporter. And so every edition is a collection of like what crazy thing is happening in internet culture right now. Sometimes it engages with things that might've kind of touched the news but a lot of times it's just like weird fights that are happening in reddit that like in that like they kind of explain a certain subculture and uh, and then deeper down he'll also have just a kind of roundup of amazing uh tweets and tiktoks and um and as i you know speaking of like putting old man slippers on my feet as i get older uh i'm 42 for what it's worth um i you know i feel completely disconnected from fast moving things, right? Like the fast moving internet culture and, and all that stuff is just, I, I don't know how to access it anymore. And, um, and so garbage day shows up. It's a sub stack. You just Google garbage day. Um, garbage day shows up and I read it and I just feel like I am, I am fluent 
in a part of the world that is hidden to me, but that is also like the, the, the undercurrent that probably everything that I see is, is like seven steps above. So uh, it makes me feel much more plugged in. I really love it. I love that. Okay. Jeff put the link in the, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well, but we've already got the link to it, but garbage day, everybody. Okay. <laughs> Last question for you. Yeah. As I mentioned before, love copying homework, love, love all of that. And everybody else does as well, who joins us here every week because yeah. we're nerdy like that. What would be a homework assignment that you would give us to do in the next, call it the end of the week, or maybe even a little bit of next week that you feel like would be really great? I will give one, which is, I think everybody obviously should download your book and listen oh, okay. to it because I found it so insanely helpful. And I will also say, um, I have two friends that work in corporate who mm -hmm. I also got them to download and read it. And so I would say, even if you work in corporate and you think, well, I'm not an entrepreneur, I don't have to adapt. You do have to adapt. Yes. Uh, Build for Tomorrow is for you as well. So that would be my homework that I would give everybody. But what would your homework assignment be for everybody? Oh, um, that's great. Well, I appreciate the very self-promotion. Well, it wasn't you. You weren't self-promotional. You're very promotional uh, uh, homework assignment. I'll take that all day long. Um, so, you know, that's really interesting. I here here's here's one of the. Um, I wrote about this recently in my in my newsletter, uh, and a lot of people responded and said that they they found it really useful. So, a long time ago, a long time ago, a long time ago, I was very uncomfortable promoting myself. Speaking of promoting, um, I I I always thought that like promoting myself was was basically um, hoisting a burden upon other people because now they have to like deal with it or react to it or something, and um, and so. I would, whenever I would tell people about something that I did, I would do it in this very self-defacing kind of way. I, I, I looked back at how I sent an email out about my new podcast when it was new to all my friends. And the subject line was, in case you're not sick of my voice, right? So it was like, that was like my style, you know? And, um, and uh, but eventually I realized that uh, like entrepreneurs do this thing and it's, this is not just for entrepreneurs. I really think this is basically for everybody that entrepreneurs do this thing where um, they're really completely comfortable telling people about the thing that they have in it and then even helping and driving them towards it. Um, and, and I was wondering what it is that they're doing. And I eventually came to this realization, which is that they are operating with the surefire belief that what they have built or created is useful. And if it is useful to others, then it is not self-promotional at all. It is actually a gift to be able to say, I have this very useful thing and I and I I, I want you to have it too. It's almost it is like your responsibility to tell people about something that's very useful to them. Right. I didn't feel awkward telling you about garbage day. I don't make garbage day, but I think that it's valuable and I want you to have it. And so why wouldn't I do the same with my own thing? Because I know that that's useful too. So I just started operating under that premise. And the first thing I did actually was, was on LinkedIn, which was that if whenever anybody would connect with me on LinkedIn, you know, and I didn't know them personally, which happens all the time, 
I would accept and I would manually send them this message basically saying like, it's great to connect with people who love what they do. Um, uh, here's something that I'm proud of recently. It's this whatever, you know, like at the time it was a podcast. And, um, and, and uh, like I was completely shocked by what happened, which was that people responded and thanked me. Oh, thanks for letting me know about that. Oh, that's so exciting. People reacted. They engaged. I do it now. And now if, if somebody, I mean, test it. If you don't already connect with me on LinkedIn, test it. You will get a message back that basically says, I love connecting, blah, 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 blah. And it'll tell you about this book and people buy it because I sent them that message. And once I did that and it kind of broke the seal for me on self-promotion, I started doing it all the time. And I find that, you know, fine, not everybody cares about the thing that I made, but enough people do. And nobody's offended if I told them about this thing that I'm proud of that now I, I feel as long as I believe that I have done something that other people should have, that um, it's my responsibility to tell them. So my homework to you is to take a look at the connections that you're making and the, the opportunities that you have in front of people and think, how can I tell them about something that I'm doing in a way in which I'm framing it as value to them? It's not about you promoting you. It's about you helping them. The more that you do that, I think the more in which you're going to feel comfortable sharing what your value is, and you'll be able to create even more value. Oh, I love that. So good. <laughs> Thank it's you. So good. It's so good. And it's so true. If you can help people and you're not, what are you doing? You have to be always framing it as helping others. So yeah. So good. Jason, thank you so much for spending so much of your valuable time with us today and kind of diving into the book. This was, as always, so much fun. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Kim, you do like fantastic work. You've built this amazing community. I'm watching them in the comments. Thank you to everybody uh, who's been who's been commenting. Uh, Jeff Walsh, especially, who's been just like shouting out all my stuff, like super appreciate you. Um, I'll tell you, you know what, you know what the next thing, uh, when, when we do this in, in a couple of years and we do a speed round, I'm going to say that the thing that I loved was that I found a light that, uh, that makes me not look like, um, I'm part of the wall. Look at me. My complexity is like part of the wall. I gotta, I gotta do better here. Uh, but, but, I, but you brought it, you brought the color and the, and the energy. I, Kim, it's just, it's always a delight. Yeah. <sighs> absolute best. Well, thank you everybody for joining Jason and I. I know we had some questions. Yes, this is being recorded. Yes, you can access this afterwards. Yes, you can send this to friends or family members that you think will find it helpful. All of that information will be available to you offline. If you need help with the link, you can message me or Jason, and I'm sure we'll be able to help you get to that. But it is very easy if you want to watch the replay later. We promise. So I am so glad that you were able to join today. I will be back next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, same time, same place. But big thank you to you and thank you again to Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kim. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. Whew, that was some good stuff. Thanks for being a part of this week's Coffee with Kim. If podcasts are your thing, subscribe to the show and you'll see a new episode appear next week in your favorite listening app. If you want to be a part of the conversation, join us live on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern over on LinkedIn. You can RSVP at getcoffeewithkim.com. I want you to have your questions answered because why should I get to have all the fun? And let's be honest, you know how to ask some hard hitting questions. 
My guests and I cannot wait to meet you. See you soon.